Welcome to Zero Trust 30. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and this is the show that helps you make sense of the cybersecurity sensation that is Zero Trust. Joined today with uh, two new guests uh, that have not been on the podcast before, and we're excited to have them. We've got Garrett Becker, who's a principal research analyst at 451 Research. Garrett is predominantly focused on identity access management, zero trust, cloud, and data security. Uh, Garrett, if you wouldn't mind, just say hello so we know that you're real and here. <laughs> thanks, George. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. And hi, everyone. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Awesome. And then we're also joined by Julie Price, who's our chief marketing officer here at AppGate. Julie has uh, extensive experience in the cybersecurity space. Uh, with stints at Dell SecureWorks, uh, RSAM, Dumbala, Sixterra, and now, of course, AppGate as well. Julie, let's hear your voice as well so we know you are here and, and, and human. Uh, hello. It's great to be with you. I am here. I think I'm human. <laughs> <laughs> really nice to talk to everybody today. That's awesome. All right. So before we get into anything, because we're here to kind of talk about hybrid workforces and the role of zero trust and zero trust network access. But before we do anything, we like to just play a fun little icebreaker game. Uh, It's called What's Bugging You? And so, Garrett, we'll start with you. What's bugging you right now in the cybersecurity space? Or really, it could be anything. Uh, You know, so here's the thing that's been bugging me, although my wife disagrees. But um, I love Christmas and I'm really happy to... um, be doing all the stuff, getting the tree ready and all that. But um, that Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas song, um, it just, I can't get away from it. It's in the car. It's on TV commercials. Yeah, that is definitely bugging me. There you go. Anything cyber related or, or is it just Mariah Carey Christmas songs? And I feel you. <laughs> I, I can I can absolutely resonate. When, once Pandora starts going on Christmas song radio, it is Rinse and repeat, Mariah Carey all the time. There you go. Yeah, I think they actually have a Mariah Carey channel on SiriusXM. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess the, um, you know, the biggest one is, is really obviously just to sort of beat a dead horse, but the whole ransomware thing, it just seems like yep. that's been the, the steady theme throughout, you know, the last year and the last, you know, maybe two years. And it just seems to be getting getting worse and seems like there's no end in sight. So maybe that would be my my cybersecurity thing that's bugging me. I don't think you're alone there. Julie, how about you? What's bugging you? It's super hard to top the Mariah Carey holiday reference, so I'll just go straight to cyber. <laughs> I think what's bugging me is the zero trust vendor mania. Mm. So here's what I mean by that. We're right ahead of the RSA conference 2022 in San Francisco. Um, we're hoping that it will be in person next year, but um, you know, in reflecting back on on the last one we had, which was in February 2020, I came across this really interesting Forbes article that summarized the event. And in the article, it said that the number of vendors claiming to have zero trust solutions grew 50% in 2022. So it increased from 60 to almost 100 that were using zero trust messaging in their booths. And, you know, it's great because we're zero trust advocates, but the piece of it that bugs me is that sometimes hype can dissuade people from actually paying attention to the message. Um, So they tend to discount it. And, um, you know, I think we just need some straight talk around zero trust, like a BS free zone, and that might help people get past it. Yeah, I I concur. I, I, I didn't realize I'm a little bit, it's a little bit staggering to me that it's actually that big of a number. But I'm kind of not surprised, right? Like I saw the zero trust washing starting about three years ago. 
Um, and it was getting a little out of hand then. And we'll, we'll probably talk about that later. But, um, yeah, I think that's, that's contributing to a lot of the noise that's out there right, right now about zero trust. I think there's a lot of confusion on the part of customers um, in, the, in the industry itself. But, uh, yeah, point taken, Julie. That's, that's really interesting. You know, the thing that does give me hope, though, Garrett, is I think we went through the same thing when cloud first came out, right? Everybody, cloudy this, cloudy that. Everybody talked about cloud and there was so much hype. But over time, you know, the technology and the benefits have prevailed. And so the hype kind of died down, normalized, reality set in, and people started implementing cloud. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, you know, as an industry analyst, like we're subjected to a lot of FUD and a lot of fads and a lot of hype. That's kind of what we do. So, you know, we, we see it come and go every year. It's nothing new. Um, but, but I agree with you. I think as, as much as there's a lot of hype around zero trust as there was around cloud, um, I personally think this is maybe one of the biggest things that's actually happened throughout my cybersecurity career, you know, which is over 20 years. So I think there's a lot of substance there. And I, um, you know, maybe we can go go into a little bit more deep detail on this topic later, but um, you know, I think eventually everybody's going to be doing zero trust, right? It's going to be a philosophy and a, and a way of actually going about thinking about security. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot of hype, but I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of substance there as well. Well, and I think that's what adds to the confusion, right? Is that you don't go out and buy zero trust. It is a mindset that you adopt and the way that you apply it is going to be very different for every organization. And it's the, there's the people process technology component around zero trust. And so, yep, um, lots of positive in, in the pickup of zero trust in the marketplace, but uh, just like anything else, right, lots of confusion as well. So we can kind of help with this podcast today, cut through some of that confusion and, and, and look at it um, in a somewhat, you know, objective fashion. So today we are here to talk about you know, zero trust for hybrid workforces, um, there's, you know, we're going to basically talk about some of the security and complexity challenges that have, we've all faced over the past couple of years. Uh, we're not going to go off into a big, you know, repeat of, of, of everything that we've already talked about related to the pandemic. Uh, but we're definitely going to touch on some of the challenges related to remote work. And now as, you know, the, the tides turn, people are opening up their doors to offices. Um, you know, what does this return to the office actually look like? And again, what are some of the security challenges and implications of that? And then we're going to try to really kind of then look at it from a zero trust standpoint and say, how does it help solve some of these challenges? So this first section, which we're calling hybrid workforce challenges, really, you know, what I would like to have happen, Garrett, is if, you know, you could just level set on what you've seen from the full 51 research side of the equation related to the adoption of remote work among enterprises. And now what you're seeing as this kind of return to work is is continuing to evolve. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, George. So, um I guess maybe to start out is one of the first things we saw when the whole COVID thing hit two years ago, and it's or, uh, it's hard to believe it's almost it's almost been two years already. Um, we saw a pretty quick jump in the amount of remote work. In other words, we saw I think initially we ran a flash survey almost as soon as COVID hit, and we got out about a month later, two months later. And we found at that point, roughly one third of all the enterprises we surveyed plan on making work from home or remote work, uh, a, a significant or permanent part of their strategy going forward. Um, that jumped up pretty quickly. I think just a few months later, we re- re-ran that survey and it bumped up from one third to two thirds. 
And right now, um, we asked the question slightly differently, so it's not an apples to apples to compare. But um, our most recent data is we've got uh, roughly 75% of firms say they will have a significantly increased reliance on work from home going forward. So, I mean, the short answer is you're not putting the toothpaste back in the tube. Work from home, work from anywhere is kind of here to stay. Um, you know, the other thing we saw, um, interestingly, we, we've got our survey service at 451 we call Voice of the Enterprise or Vote. Um, where we survey several hundred senior IT decision makers, and then we use it as a basis for writing reports and make pretty charts and stuff like that. So um, shameless plug, but um, what we found uh, also with related to COVID is uh, I think the most recent data we had is something like over 40% of firms expect to spend more on security directly due to COVID and the whole work from home thing. And what we're finding is, Pretty consistently, what they're spending on tends to be multi-factor authentication. Seen a big jump there. Um, and two things that are they're sort of competitive to some extent, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about, but VPNs uh, and ZTNA, uh, right? And uh, I think a lot of what we saw was, you know, a lot of the initial jump to VPN was sort of the knee-jerk, hey, we have to, what can we do as fast as, we, get these people up and working as fast as we can. But that's certainly what we've seen. Um I'd say just to close that thought, you know, anecdotally, and I mentioned this before, you know, work from home just isn't going away. Um, certainly I see it in my own family. Um, but we also look at, um, I think anecdotally we're hearing, just read something I think in the New York Times today, that thanks to Omicron, um, we've consistently seen the, the goalposts being moved in terms of when are we going back to the office, right? I've seen it at S&P. My wife works for a bank. Same thing. Oh, we're going back in September, October, January, February. Now with Omicron around the corner, it seems like nobody's got a firm date anymore. And I think that's uh, kind of where we're at right now. Well, I can imagine too, if you're, if you're a large, you know, multinational organization, you're going to have to have some level of variation in terms of what your remote versus, uh, you know, back to office looks like. You know, even just here in the United States, you have different states with different regulations and, you know, strict adherence to policies related to COVID. And so it makes it very difficult from my perspective for security practitioners and IT individuals to be able to manage all of these, you know, varying degrees of policies related to where somebody is going to be working and connecting to corporate networks. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's a great point. Um, you also have varying levels of COVID status, right? It seems to be at some point, you know, some states are going through a very low risk, some are going through a very high risk. So those, to your point, those those policies are constantly changing, right? As the threat levels are changing. So yeah, uh, yeah, I go so far as to say we have city to city variances too. True. So, True. You know, it's it's crazy that it gets down to that that micro level, but it but it certainly does. And you know, I just wanted to pull a thread that um, Garrett started um, about the voice of the enterprise um, report that they did, which was great. We had during kind of that same time done a third party um, research survey of our customer base and talking to them about you know, the value of zero trust, but what came out of one of the um, lines of questioning was, you know, the whole work from home. And 
um, the companies that were surveyed had an average of 14% of their employees that were working from home prior to COVID, and then an average of 80% during COVID, which is similar to Garrett's 75% um, stat. But they also believe that, you know, 55% or more would continue working from home in, in the future. So I think, you know, hybrid's here to stay, um, that we have to think about what is the best way to serve these enterprises um, moving forward to provide them with a uniform way to provide secure access. And, you know, some of the things mentioned like VPN, you know, that's a remote access solution. It's not an access solution, network access solution. So we have to have people think about access beyond just remote access. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I, I've referred to this and we've used this in our, some of our reports. We've called uh, the pandemic as the world, world's largest experiment in remote work, right? Um, and me personally, it brings back reminders of um, 9-11 in some respects. Um, I was working in New York when 9-11 happened. And um, similar thing in southern Manhattan. Um, I, I, at one point, I worked at Merrill Lynch, which was right, right you know, ground zero, basically. Um, and it was a similar challenge. Like overnight, they had to go from, you know, very small percentage of their workforce working remote to almost all of them working remote, you know, 50,000 or more uh, overnight. Um, this is actually obviously on a much bigger scale because it's not just New York City. It's, it's, the, whole, it's the whole world. Um, but but similar dynamics, um, yeah. Well, it's 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 a giant risk management exercise at the end of the day, right? Because you want to be good stewards of the people who are helping you know produce results for your organization, and so a lot of it is about protecting them. And I think the question that I want to go to next is, you know, by allowing flexible workspaces, you know, being able to push people out to to their homes to work or give them flexibility to come back into the office. You know, in terms of risks, what challenges have security and IT teams been faced with as a result of this? You know, what is their what is their day to day struggle now because of this this hybrid model? Uh, one thing that comes to mind for me is you know it reminds me of cloud. And as you know, you mentioned earlier, I, I've been covering cloud security for like the last seven years or so. Um, and not only you know are we talking about the hybrid workforce, but also in the context of cloud, we're talking about hybrid IT, right? And one of the things I run into with customers is, you know, cloud is great, and we all know the myriad benefits of moving to the cloud, whether it's, you know, IaaS or SaaS, what have you. Um, there's, for you know, our vote data also shows, and this is nothing new, that the majority of large enterprises, even, even medium-sized enterprises, are going to be hybrid, right? Um, so the point, my point is that what that means is, you're not getting rid of your legacy estate. You still have to manage that. But now you've got this new wonderful cloud thing. And as, unless you're 100% cloud, and there are a few firms out there that do that, now you've got two different things to manage, right? So, so much for making your life more simple. Uh, it, certainly there are benefits, but now you've got a lot more stuff to worry about. And there are not necessarily um, any economies of scale from doing so. I think to some extent, there's a similar situation with hybrid workforce, Right, because now you've got to manage your employees at home and in the office, and it could be changing. In fact, a lot of companies, I know our company and, and what have you, doing what, what we call an anchor flex model, right, where you, you pick two or three or four days to go in the office, and you pick two or three days to stay at home. And that can change from week to week, right? So how, how, does, how does IT manage for that, right? And how do they ensure that you're secure 
wherever you are. Um, how do they also deal with things like, do you have enough, um, you know, operational things like what's your bandwidth, right? How's your network performance? Is that adequate? Um, are you sharing a Wi-Fi network with your wife and kids? You know, like I was last year when the kids were being homeschooled. Um, how do you make sure your, your, you know, your kids aren't using your work computer um, for for playing video games and doing whatever they're doing? Um, so yeah, those are some of the, some of the newer challenges I think this this brings brings upon, uh, you know, brings in. It seems to me like for the administrators, you know, this is just a nightmare, right? They have to try to get uniform access policies so that they're not managing separate access policies for the workload or applications. So they can't have something different if you're on-premise or hybrid or if you're all cloud or, by the way, lots of people still have mainframes. So how do we solve that issue for them? How do we give them uniform policy um, models that they can apply across their their infrastructure, no matter what it looks like? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it's interesting, um, Gary, you brought up ransomware at the beginning here, right? And it's like, oh, we can't seem to solve this problem. And we've seen a huge spike of that over the past couple of years. It's hard not to make a correlation between an increase in the um, threats that every organization and everybody is starting to see, the success of ransomware attacks, the monetization of ransomware attacks, and the fact that we have you know, exploded the attack surface of every organization by sending people out of the office. I mean, really it is, you know, users are um, the most valuable and the most risky resource that any organization has today. And, you know, that's, it's that struggle between how to give users working remote seamless user experiences so that they can actually do their job and be productive uh, but at the same time, do that in a way that doesn't introduce vulnerabilities and risk to the organization. I mean, that's a very difficult balance to strike. Yeah, yeah. I, you, you said two things there that I wanted to touch on a little bit, and I think is really interesting. And one that I've been sort of harping on for the past couple of years because I, I cover MFA and I covering. I used to cover the encryption space quite a bit, and one of the things that we consistently hear why people don't use more MFA and why they don't do encryption more is largely because the experience is pretty bad, right? For users and what have you. And I think <clears throat> we're starting to see, I, I just read something the other day about basically saying that, you know, employees are starting to have more power these days and we're starting to see more and more, um, you know, we saw the early consumerization of IT start like what, 10, 15 years ago with the whole BYOD thing. And I remember Symantec making a lot of efforts back then, you know, 15 years ago. And I think it's just continued, right? But it used to be just about your customers. You had to worry if the customers didn't have a good user experience, they'd go elsewhere. But I think employees are starting to look for that same sort of thing. Um, we're even seeing with developers. Um, so that's the one point. The other point I wanted to bring about, um, I, I, did a, um, I did some work with a company last year called Tessian, where they do basically DLP and things like that. And um, they did a study that um, I was aware of that was pretty interesting. What they found was um, there's a disconnect between what employees are actually doing at home and what their employers think they are doing. Mm. Um, and employers tend to have a much more positive opinion of what their employees are actually doing. But when you survey the employees, you find they're taking all kinds of security risks that they normally wouldn't in the office because they feel that nobody's watching them. So uh, that was an interesting point to bring up. 
Yeah. We actually did an interesting study on generational IT, um, and there's a few things that came out of it. Out of it, but one was that even the the idea of risk differs based on what your generation is. So if you're you know baby boomer, you have a different concept about what would constitute risk, and you approach cyber differently versus if you were a millennium or a Gen X. So um, it's interesting to see that different generations have different views about. Um, risky cyber behavior and, and how to deal with it. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. Um, and then certainly the user experience is, is huge. Um, when you think about the user experience with a VPN, I mean, we recall seeing when the height of COVID hit that people were going on social media and talking about getting bumped off of their VPNs. VPN time was being rationed and, you know, people couldn't do their work. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see um, a groundswell of employees say, hey, this technology is not working for me. Give me something better. <laughs> yeah, you just reminded me too. One of the problems we had early on is people were actually logging into their VPNs and then going to SaaS apps, um, <laughs> you know, or they were going to YouTube. Um, and one of the problems we had was all the VPN bandwidth was getting sucked up by, you know, people didn't know. They're like, oh, I, I didn't know I didn't need to log in my VPN to go access Salesforce um, and things like that. So, um well, you can't really put the you can't really put the onus on the the end user, right? That's never going to work. One hundred percent, one hundred percent. That's that's what I've come to realize with a lot of the, the work I've been doing around UX, right? If the UX isn't good, um, if you if you put if you put the onus on the user, certainly in a customer environment, right? They're gone. They'll go to another bank or another e-commerce mm-hmm. site if they don't like it. Um, but we're even starting to see, to your point, Julie, generationally, I think. Um, you know, my generation certainly, right, in a, in a, um, would be more inclined to just put up with it, I, I think. But I think some of the younger folks are, are more inclined to say, hey, I don't, I don't like this experience. I'm going to go somewhere else. So It's a very competitive workforce these days. <laughs> so you need every advantage you can get. Absolutely. So let's, let, let's flip the conversation on its head a little bit. And let's actually start talking about zero trust as a um, – as a soul for some of this. And so Garrett, I just, you know, let's level set from your perspective. Could you give us your best definition of zero trust and then also zero trust network access, right? You, you, you mentioned that earlier on with MFA, VPNs and ZTNA. I think we, it, it's important to, to, to put a difference between when we talk about zero trust and when we talk about zero trust network access. So if you wouldn't mind, you know, defining what those are, from your point of view, but then also looking at what you've seen in terms of adoption um, around ZT and ZTNA. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's sort of become alphabet soup, right, between ZTNA and ZT and SDP, and dare I mention SASE, which is the new one, right, S-A-S-E. Um, yeah, so so I, I wrote a, a long format report on Zero Trust, uh, it's almost three years ago, I think this month, and um you know, one of the things I struggle with is, is trying to figure out which vendor should be in it because, to your point, I, I quickly realized that zero trust is, dare I say, a paradigm, but um, <laughs> I, I don't love using that word, but um, it's, a, it's a philosophy, it's a foundation, it's a mindset, it's an approach. It's not a product, right? Um, and that was, that was what I struggle with. Okay, if this is not a product, how do I go about delineating a group of firms that belong in this segment? Um, I mean, to me, there's, there's a lot of definitions going around in zero trust. We've had a lot of internal arguments. 
to me, um, maybe function of being an identity person, but it comes down to two main things, right? One, access is contingent upon your identity. Um, and you could be a person, it can be a machine, it can be a thing, it can be a system, what have you. But, um, you know, compare that to the old network-based world, it was con the number one factor was where you're coming from, right? It's what network were you on, what country are you in, and we're going to apply policies that way. Um, I'm not going to – wouldn't go so far as to say location doesn't matter anymore because it definitely matters. It's certainly a big contextual indicator and a contextual access plan, but it's not the primary thing, right? Like I, I used to joke – it's kind of like, you know, firewalls used to be, they used to call firewalls an access control. It's kind of like if you went to the airport and you go through TSA, instead of looking at your driver's license, um, they just ask you where you're coming from and where you're going. And they look and see if it's, it's permitted according to their table and off you go. Um, you know, zero trust to me is ultimately about identity. What you get access to is dependent on who you are, what roles you have and what you're allowed to do. Um, and two is the principle of least privilege, right? You only need to access what you need to do your job and nothing more. And that's been around for a long time. You know, it used to be, I think they call it the positive security model in the old CISSP manual. Um, you know, for so many years, what we did was, was the opposite. It was like we'd let everything go through and try to filter out the bad stuff, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to just block everything and only allow what's expressly permitted. I think it's a, it's a more effective way. So, um, but again, to me, that's the philosophy of zero trust. ZTNA, um, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple, but to me, and I know there's subtle differences, but I look at it, it is a product, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's a product for delivering remote access as an alternative to a VPN. Um, typically, it does not require VPN-type clients. Um, typically, it doesn't require hardware. But I also think it's being used sort of as a replacement for what we used to call SDP, software-defined perimeter. And we could probably split hairs on whether ZTNA and SDP are actually equivalent, but I think conceptually that's the way I think of it. Yeah, I think that's a separate podcast in and of itself because, <laughs> you know, they, they, they really are synonymous to a degree. We, we, we like to say that, you know, software-defined perimeter is, is the architecture, right, that helps us deliver on zero-trust network access. Julie, do you have any thoughts on, on zero-trust versus ZTNA or anything you wanted to add there? Yeah, sure. I think, um, yeah, I agree totally with Garrett that zero trust in and of itself is an architecture. Um, so it's not a product. And I think that's where some of the FUD comes in when you're looking at different messages and what competitors are saying. You can't buy zero trust. Everybody wants the, you know, silver bullet, you know, solution for security. There isn't one. And zero trust is a strategy or a way of um, looking at your network differently and then putting together the right solutions um, to solve for um, the cybersecurity challenges. ZTNA, in my view, yes, that is something that is something you can buy. You can buy a solution to solve for securing your network access, no matter um, anywhere, anybody, any device. We call it the any, any, any principle here or, you know, any squared. Um, also interesting on the SDP, you know, I feel like it's just... It's evolved a little as we start, you know, Zero Trust started to come more into the nomenclature and SDP kind of um, made its way a little bit out. But, you know, it was about, you know, um, defining um, the perimeter, you know, software defined perimeter. It was all about, you know, the network and 
Um, to me, the evolution brings us to where it's really about people define security, right? It's what the actions that people are taking. It's all about the identity of the people and what they're doing. So it's just a slight twist on SDP, but it's um, kind of the same idea, just a little bit more evolved. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you look at zero, again, zero trust versus ETNA, if we're talking about zero trust, it's a journey just like cloud, right? When first, when cloud first hit the scenes, uh, there was early adopters and then it continued to mature, more services got layered on. And now you think about cloud native architectures and containers. I mean, that was nowhere in the lexicon 10 years ago. And now, you know, here it is and it's completely changed the face of IT. I think Zero Trust is very similar to that in that you have to look at it logically. And I think that's probably where you have some um, resistance to it is it feels like a lot at face value, like this is, like you said, it's a paradigm shift. I know maybe, Gary, you don't like that word paradigm, but really is. It's a change of mindset. It's not just a piece of technology. It's, it's, it's the people. It's the process. But logically, if you look at the principles of zero trust, it all hinges on securing access. And so what does that mean to secure access? And I think to bring it kind of full circle back to this hybrid workforce, I mean, there, there's a very real, and this is likely why you're seeing the adoption curve go up as well, is there are very, there's a very real challenge that has been pressed upon organizations from external factors that is now necessitating a need for a better way to deliver secure access, irregardless of where a user is and irregardless of where a workload is. And it all hinges on identity, like you said. And I think as that matures outside of user to workload, that same identity principle applies then to service to service, server to server, workload to workload, whatever you want to call it, right? But again, that's not likely the first stepping stone of your zero trust journey. It's likely the users because human error and humans are the number one attack surface and more often than not, the number one reason why breaches occur to begin with. So makes logical sense to start there. Yeah, and I think I even we're even seeing that in the cloud, right? One of the um, there's an area that I cover called CIEM, uh, which is cloud infrastructure entitlement management, and they basically tackle the whole issue along with CSPM, right? The cloud security um, posture management. Um, they basically, you know, are looking to attack two problems. One is in misconfigured settings in your cloud environment or misappropriated, you know, misallocated permissions, excessive permissions. And a lot of that is due to human error, which can lead to huge problems. Um, but, you know, circling back to zero trust, I think, yeah, so our data shows, um, it's interesting, we've surveyed quite a lot on this in the past year, but generally speaking, our data shows that if you measure in terms of actual deployments, and you look at zero trust compared to other security technologies, you know, from firewalls to email security to, you know, IPS, IDS, SIM, you name it, a list of 25, 30 things. Zero trust is down near the bottom in terms of actual deployments. Um, but then if you sort based on what's most in plan for the next two years, zero trust goes almost to the top. Um, you know, I think something like, uh, I forget what the numbers are, I think two thirds of recipients or sorry, respondents in our survey work expect to do ZTNA in the next two years, um, although 23% already have ZTNA in use. So I, I think that's that's a good sign. But, I, you know, to your point, and I hate to say this, uh, this is overused a little bit to say, oh, it's a process and it's a journey. Mm -hmm. It truly is, right? And if you, I've often used this as a sort of an example. 
arguably one of the first firms to actually deploy zero trust was Google, right, with the whole Beyond Corp model. Yep. Um, the Beyond Corp name has kind of gone away. But even mighty Google, um, you know, it took them like, I think, three years to implement zero trust, right? And well, we all know Google's got a lot of really smart people and a lot of resources. So, you know, I think a lot of firms potentially be scared off by that. Like, holy cow, you know, it took Google three years to do this. Where am I going to start? Um, and I think that's something that a lot of firms are wrestling with now is, you know, how do I wrap my head around this zero trust thing? Where do I start? Um and I, I think the best, you know, I think you alluded to this earlier is <clears throat> it really has to be a journey. It has to be a phased approach. Start out small, get some quick wins, and just gradually evolve over time. It's it's not something you're going to do. Um, you know, it, it, it's 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 not a box you can just plug in like a like a firewall, sprinkle on some rules, and you know you get some blinky lights, and then you're done with it. But I think it's also important to recognize. You know, some of those legacy systems, I mean, obviously VPN's got a target on its back for, for obvious reasons, but it's not, you know, throw everything out with the kitchen sink and start from scratch. That journey coincides with existing investments and it's a matter of kind of respecting decisions that have been made and, and investments that have been made and not thinking like you have to scratch it all out and, and, and rebuild. It's incrementally chipping away at it over time. And allowing some of those legacy technologies that have been overstretched as the cloud and the perimeter has been pushed out of kind of, you know, what they were built and intended to do from the beginning, let them do what they were intended to do and layer on some of the new technologies to uh, act as like kind of like that network overlay, right? And then really put what you already have to, to the best of its pure capabilities that it, that it was intended to solve for when it first hit the scene. Yeah, and a great point. I mean, you know, you could probably, I think some people out there, and I've had many conversations about whether VPNs and ZTNA are competitive or complementary. Yep. Um, some are, take more of a hard line, and we could have a whole separate podcast on that topic alone, right? Um, whether VPNs and, and ZTA can coexist. Um, you know, I personally think that they can be complementary, right? Um, there's, a, there's certain scenarios where VPNs can work fine. Um, there's certain, um, there are a lot of firms out there that also, to your point, have a lot of legacy equipment that is going to take a long time to depreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, there are certain applications out there, for example, that are never going to move off the mainframe, right? Um, they just, it just doesn't make sense or for various reasons they won't. So yeah, I think a lot of this legacy stuff will be there for, for a long time. Um, but I also think ZTNA can also help enable new use cases, right? That are potentially complementary, like, um, you know, you can turn on secure access for, say, a, a project group or some consultants for a very short yep. period of time where maybe in the past it wouldn't make sense to spend all the money to give them a VPN license to do a one or two month project and then turn it off. It, so, um, you know, maybe sort of uh, the democratization of access, so to speak, you know, I. So I can remember when I used to get VPN, it was a big deal to get VPN access, right? You're, 15 years ago, I was at Merrill Lynch, like, wow. You know, if you're one of the people who got to have a laptop and actually connect remotely, that was that was a big deal, right? It was probably less than five percent of our overall workforce, maybe ten percent. So, I think yep. this one thing ZTNA can do is, you know, now make it feasible, you know, to have ninety percent of your or hundred percent of your employees with the capability of working remotely, just do it in a more flexible, you know, more efficient manner. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Julie, I want to I want to turn this last question over to you because I know you've got some data from from the surveys and the studies that you mentioned earlier. Um, security benefits, you know, we we talked through a lot of those related to, to to ZTNA specifically. Let's let's kind of focus on that. But back to the whole user experience component, and I think when we think about users, right, there's the end users using the technology, but then there's also the users administrating the technology and making their lives a little bit simpler, um, thinking about policy management. So what are some of the operational benefits um, that many are experiencing with zero trust network access from the survey that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, it's such a great question. So yeah, first and foremost, to put a bow on the user experience, one of the quotes that came back to us from uh, one of our customers in the survey was that um, their workforce went from hate IT to love IT when they got rid of the VPN because of all of the user issues. So um, a ringing endorsement there from the employees of that company. But in terms of you know operational benefits and admin benefits, um, there's some really great stats. Uh, one of the um, companies that was surveyed, a, a media and entertainment company, said that user provisioning time dropped by 100%. So basically, 30 minutes to provision a, a user to almost instantaneously. And in line with that, their trouble tickets dropped by more than 99%. So a huge um, sigh of relief, I'm sure, from the IT teams there working on those types of um, scenarios. Um, another great um, stat we saw was a high-tech company that had a really robust DevOps program so that they were able to reduce the number of full-time employees handling their provisioning from six down to three. So they just, you know, they moved them to more strategic projects and, and got them off the, uh, you know, provisioning um, roller coaster. And then I would say one other last um, stat that I thought was really interesting from a financial services firm was that they improved their overall security stance. So, um, you know, not just specific to their um, securing their network access, but overall they saw their security incidents drop by 50% after implementing ZTNA. And um, these are real stats from customers that they've tracked. And um, it really points to benefits beyond just improving your security, um, operational benefits for the business that can come from this. Garrett, does that resonate? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, there, there are a number of non-security benefits that, that I've seen out there as well. Um, and I alluded to some of them earlier, but, you know, faster provisioning, right? Being able to get this, you know, um, you know, in the old VPN world, like actually, you know, back in the day of shipping actual physical appliances, but also getting the, the client software rolled out, um, you know, uh, there can be a challenge even with, with non-employees, right, where they may not have BYOD in place. Or there may be some companies that are like, uh, that, that are locked down and you can't put on VPN client software. How do you get around that? Um, I mentioned some of the performance issues, the, the CX issues, and just extending this out to you know different user bases, and then again some of the early, earlier discussion we had around having a better user experience. I think all that all that stuff is is really important to keep in mind. Yeah, let's not forget about APIs, right? I mean, there's not much that integrates with a VPN, and so as you start moving out of the hardware model into the software model, there's a lot of utilization for existing tools and, and, and data sets that can be kind of put to work to build better modeling, you know, better automation, more dynamic policy resolution, those types of things. 
cognizant of time here because it's been a really good conversation i do want to offer up before we go to our our final rapid fire question round which has nothing to do with cybersecurity at all and that's the purpose of it are there any final do we get a prize (laughs) yeah you got a microphone out of it didn't you (laughs) good enough There, there you go um any final thoughts from from either of you to kind of wrap up this topic garrett you want to go first sure um I guess, uh, you know, it's exciting times to be in security is never a dull moment. But I think, uh, you know, my, some of my colleagues are probably getting sick of hearing me talk. About it, but I think I think zero trust is here to stay. Um, you know, I, it's definitely going through the, the hype cycle. But um, I'm really actually excited about um, what I think it can ultimately bring to us down the road. I think it's going to be I think it's going to be a good thing for the for the industry overall. Julie, anything from you? Yeah, I think the good news is, and so often we don't talk about good news and security. It all sounds like bad news. The good news for um, security professionals is, you know, you do not have to give away the whole network to everyone anymore. You don't. There are modern secure access solutions. There are um, different approaches now that you can take to make sure that you are combating the issue of overprivileged access, you know, wide open networks. Um, there, there is um, hope for folks. So it might be nice to start 2022 with hope. <laughs> there you go. Ended on a positive note. Thanks for that. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. This is a rapid fire question round. We've got three questions. Um, this, this whole game thing has been evolving as we record more podcasts. So we're going to have each of you answer the same question. So we'll do, I'll ask the question, Garrett, you answer, then Julie, you answer, then we'll go to the next question and so forth and so on. All right. So Garrett, starting with you, what do you do to relax? <laughs> if that presumes I do relax. Um, True. <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, given time, I would say it's uh, either play golf or play my guitar. Nice. Ooh. Julie, how about you? What do you do to relax? I love to do a lot of different things, love to exercise, etc. But one thing I really find relaxing is to read an actual book, either a hardcover or a paperback. There's something very relaxing about turning pages, not just flipping through them on my mobile device. So I do love to do that. I find it really relaxing. I like books that kind of combine, you know, some kind of historical fact with fiction. Nice. All right, Gal, what one fear you want to conquer? <laughs> One fear. Uh, it's very personal, very quick on this podcast. Yeah, I know. I guess I'd say, you know, believe it or not, this may sound weird coming from an analyst who does this all the time, but public speaking mm. is something that, you know, most people are, are nervous about. And believe it or not, after all these years, I still get a little butterflies every now and then for public speaking. So um, I guess that would be my number one. Understandable. That and, that and Mariah Carey Christmas songs. There you go. That is terrifying. <laughs> You're, you're in good company with the stage fright, though. I mean, I remember reading about Barbara Streisand, and that's why she barely performs, because she has such incredible stage fright. You're like, how could that be? But, you know, right. it impacts everybody. Yeah, yeah. Is that your fear as well, Julie? No, you're... I think my fear, this is crazy, but I do um, not like open heights. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it, it freaks me out. I remember I was hiking in this really gorgeous canyon um, on the West Coast, years ago and the only way to get from one side to the other to cross a a river over a ravine was one of those really sketchy like rope ladders you know bridges that went across and I took one step 
across, looked down, freaked out, turned around, ran back. So I never made it to the other side. So it would have been nice to see what was on the other side. But that's that's my thing I have to conquer. You gotta go. You gotta go back and find that bridge then to conquer it. Oof. Yeah. I think <laughs> I, I think it was selective memory. I couldn't tell you where it was. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you both so much for doing this today. Um, Really appreciate it. And for the audience, thanks for listening to today's episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes at appgate.com forward slash podcast. And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, This is a show and production of AppGate. The opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the host uh, and the guests and may not represent the views of the organizations. I'm your host, George Wilkes, and you've been listening to Zero Trust 30. All right, that's a wrap. Nicely done. Thanks, everyone. That was fun. That was fun.